Hello and welcome to and or back to the Jet Real Podcast. I am your host, Jill Therese, and today I am going to answer some of your questions in this wonderful bonus episode. It's not Tuesday when you're hearing this. Congrats. I might continue doing this, but we'll see. I don't know. Let's roll the intro music. Are we good with that? Are you sure? Are you ready? Okay. Here you want to go. <laughs> Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, loyal listeners, if you do not follow the Jet Real Podcast Instagram, you may not be aware that this is not Tuesday. It's not a regular episode. If you gauge what day of the week it is by when I throw out a podcast, you should probably reevaluate your system because this might be changing. I would love nothing more than to be able to do more than one episode a week. I'm really going to try because A, mama needs the money. B, I cannot possibly answer all of your questions unless I do because, oh my God, I have started getting an influx and I asked for it and I'm happy about it, but it's a lot. Um, But hey, that gives me enough content, and that gives you a lot of episodes. So I'm hoping that it'll work out best for everyone involved, and my podcast is something that I'm really passionate about. I love answering you guys' questions, and I love talking. (laughs) So though I may have to take some water breaks on this one, because I believe we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, no, just nine. I think nine questions to answer, and some of them are quite lengthy, but Um, I have since improved my system a little bit and have pre-read all of the questions and have edited out some unnecessary details. Not that I don't love knowing every last detail about your lives. I read them, but um, for sake of time on the podcast, it's not entirely necessary. I kind of just want to get to like relevant background and um, the question. Um, So while I appreciate all the information, I don't really care to read it aloud. (laughs) I only have so much saliva in my mouth. Um, and I would like to preserve it for gay, or giving you a reply. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope to be able to do this a little bit more often. I would love to be able to upgrade to two episodes a week, but I do have a master's program, a job working here with all the horses, my YouTube, the regular podcast episodes, and I actually just took on another job as a social media manager for a massage therapy <laughs> place. So um, I'm doing a lot, but... I don't have to pay for massages anymore or massages on my horse, so that's pretty lit. Um, but, yeah, well, that's hopeful. It's not set in stone yet, but that would be nice. Um, so we're working towards all that. But, yeah, before I begin this episode, opening a can of worms here, don't know what where this worm can is, but that is what the, the people say. 
Um, <laughs> you, if you would like to send me a question for me to answer on the podcast, please send it to jetrealpodcast at gmail.com, J-E-T-R-E-A-L podcast at gmail.com. Um, please, in the opening of your email, it would be fantastic if you could say either use my name or keep it anonymous and also ask this question in the podcast or answer it privately on an email. And either of those two things, happy to do. Um, just let me know um, because if you send me an email to the podcast email, I'm going to assume you'd like me to read it. But if you don't say th- whether you want your name said or not, I'm just going to say anonymous. Um, but yeah, so with all, oh, sorry, bumping the mic. I always do that at least once per episode. <laughs> You'd think I'd be more aware of my surroundings. But anyway, without further ado, let's jump into the first question here. So anonymous listener asks here, uh, I have been playing polo for a while now. I don't own my own horse, but there's a horse at my barn I rode most of the time. We have to switch barns for the season. So September to May, I'm at the barn with this horse. He's amazing to play, but um, he is very anxious when he's being led or walked up to the mounting block. Once I'm on him, he's smooth sailing. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to read too fast. Um, smooth sailing. He paces around when we go up to the mounting block and doesn't stand still. He also has trouble leaving his stall sometimes. I'll try to lead him out and he just stops. I don't know if this is just because um, he knows he's going to have to work or if there might be something else I'm not seeing. I'm very interested in positive reinforcement, but Jack's owner and my coach aren't really a fan of it. Since he isn't my horse and other people ride him, uh, are there any sorts of small activities or exercises that I could try to see if they might settle him down? I don't want to confuse him because uh, other people ride him as well, but I also want to make sure that he is comfortable and excited about playing. I don't know if you can help with this or if you really might know that much about polo, but I value your opinion and suggestions would be helpful. Um, well, I am not a polo player and I don't know too much about it, but I have watched several polo matches and I feel like I get the gist. Um, obviously, you can't know all the intricacies if you are not one, but um, I feel like I know what the sport's about. Um, so generally when there is a horse who is balking to leave his stall or walk up to the arena or refusing to stand for the mounting block and gets very anxious, those are all signs of a horse who, um, knows what's coming. At least to me, that's what it sounds like that this is a horse that knows what's about to happen and he's like, I don't want it. Um, and that could be for any number of reasons. Um, sometimes, um, horses are like, my breakfast is back there. I would like to stay and eat my breakfast. Sometimes they're like, uh, it's cold in there. It's dark in there. It's scary. There's a lot of people running around. Maybe the arena itself is anxiety inducing. Another possibility is that, um, it's painful. Um, something about the riding experience is causing him pain. Um, because I don't think it's like rarely ever have I worked with a horse when I've led them to the arena and they've stopped or refused to be mounted that, um, there wasn't an issue going on. Um, I, I truly don't believe in the quote unquote stubborn or dominant horse that is like, no, you, I am disrespecting you and not wanting you to, um, usurp my dominance so you cannot get on me. That is not an idea that I prescribe to. And um, while laziness is a factor, typically if our horses like the job, they feel like they're getting good things out of it, um, they'll do it. Conversely, if they are scared enough <laughs> of what will happen, they will also do it. So, I mean, there's two sides to every coin. Horses don't always just do things because they love it and they want to. But a horse that is 
communicating in this way where he is not wanting to exit his stall and moving away from the mounting block is a good sign because this is a horse that feels comfortable enough with people to communicate in kind, polite ways. He's politely saying, I don't want to go in there or I'd rather you not get on right now. Those are super polite ways because he could just as easily, you know, when you lead him out of the stall, he could rear up or he could bite you. And if you lead him out of the stall and you, you know, get there and you get on the mounting block, he could buck you off, you know? I mean, there are endless worse ways. And sometimes if horses like this are ignored, they do escalate into those worse ways. And I think episode 21, I covered a very similar question to this um, on Tuesday's episode. Um, But it's a clear sign to me when a horse is like, I'm not going in there. I'd rather you not get on. And I'm really uncomfortable and anxious in this situation. Those are signs that the horse is uncomfortable. Um, If he wasn't acting anxious, then I would be like, you know, I'd be more keen to be like, maybe he is just like, you know, a little lethargic. Maybe we need to take a look at his diet and see if we can give him a little boost. But um, since he's exhibiting anxiety, it's probably more fear-based or pain-based than um, laziness. But um, that could be for any number of reasons. You know, like I said, um, the arena could be scary, but that doesn't seem to be like, he doesn't seem to be spooking a lot because you say he's smooth sailing once you get on. So um, this happens with a lot of horses. They realize, and Zoe was very much like this too, and even Bo, um, that when I would, everything leading up to riding, they were like, no, I don't want to do this, biting and kicking at me while um, I'm brushing and saddling and girthing. But as soon as I walk them to the arena, they might dance at the mounting block, but I got on and they were totally fine. We might have had a few arguments while we were riding, but I didn't care. I was like, I can bully you around and make you do what I want. And so it's a little bit more difficult to notice when you're on because when the horse does act up and try to communicate those things, it's a lot easier to kind of quell those behaviors from the saddle because you can just pull on them or if they throw their head up, you can just make them round up. And like, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to hide that from the, si- uh, from the saddle than on the ground. And it may be a little bit more difficult to notice. And I mean, he could just not be doing it uh, while you're in the saddle altogether. But um, I like to listen to horses like this when they are exhibiting those signs because they're trying to tell you something. And um, one of two things happens if that gets ignored. The horse either gets louder and starts screaming at you and becomes dangerous, or the horse just shuts down and accepts that this is his life and it's going to suck forever. And um, those are not really either path that we want for our horse. So for me... What I would do, I know this isn't your horse, but I would have a serious conversation with its owner or trainer and just be like, I really need you to back me on this because I feel like something is going on with this horse. I've never known him to, you know, balk at his job, but something's up. You know, we need to reevaluate his tack and equipment, make sure that everything fits, make sure that he doesn't have some sort of back problem Um, because horses that don't want to be mounted, there's usually some sort of pain or anxiety problem. So if he's worried about being ridden, um, usually that's either because uh, riding itself hurts. Um, You know, maybe the rider has strong hands and is being a little rough, like that's a possibility. Or maybe that riding is painful in the other sense that like just the sheer weight of the rider is hurting the horse's back because maybe he has kissing spine. I know you guys are probably like, oh my God, stop talking about kissing spine, but it is super prevalent. And that is absolutely a reason why horses may not want to be ridden. Or he could have a shoulder that's out of alignment. Um, We had a horse um, here for a while that could not pick up her left lead, like could not do it. 
And um, no matter how hard um, I tried to get her to pick it up, I tried everything I knew to get that mare to pick up her left lead. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm not going to step into the realm of abusing you because I tried like, you know, lateral stuff and um, changing directions using poles and I just could not get her to switch her lead. And so finally we had a chiropractor out and um, she looked at her and her um, entire scapula was dropped like four inches lower than the other one. And we were like, eh, okay, no wonder she couldn't. Um, and then she got adjusted. And then after a few more adjustments, she was good to go. So it makes a huge difference when you don't just like force the horse to do these things because they're trying to communicate something to me or to you. Um, to me, um, this mare was like, dude, I can't do it. And I was like, but what if, and she was like, but I can't because at first I was like, maybe she's not understanding what I'm asking. And then it became clear after a few more asks and different ways, she was like, no, dude, I seriously, I like, I can't do it. And I was like, oh, okay, lit. <laughs> let's figure it out. And oh my God, I keep bumping this stupid like I get, I'm getting hot. I get hot when I talk. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I would really um, like advise um, ch- having a look at the horse because you know, I mean, if you're not noticing anything bad when they're brushing, they may not have ulcers. But because that's usually the indication. Like if you go to touch a horse um, or brush it and it starts biting at you, it's probably a strong indication that they have ulcers because their skin hurts. Um, but if that, if none of that is happening and it's just like leading him away from his stall. And, um, at the mounting block, you're noticing all that anxiety and the like, I don't want to go in there. Um, something is up and it's worth looking at and mad props to you for listening to your horse and being like, uh, I don't know if this is like, if I should just push through it or not. Asking is a huge, huge, huge step outside of what most people do. They're just like, nope, horse is being rude. (laughs) It needs to be corrected. Um, so I'd have the horse looked at if you can. Like I said, really try to be an advocate for them. I know it can be super hard, especially when it's not your horse, but um, to be like, look, trainer, owner, whomever, I really have a feeling that this horse needs to be looked at and um, something's going on because I've never known him to not want to do his job. So we need to try and rule everything out because I don't want to be riding him through pain if he is experiencing some discomfort. So I'd like to, you know, whatever you think may be best. You might have to do a little research, um, really pay attention to him. Like if you're brushing him, you touch his back and he's sensitive anywhere, like things like that. Um, or if you notice he's really stiff behind, it could be hawks. Um, or like with Mays having trouble picking up a lead, um, her shoulder. And so um, there are just a bunch of different things that you can do to try and like, you know, think and consider and be like, okay, well, what is the issue here? Um try and like, um, I guess it's, oh God, I can never remember if it's deductive or inductive reasoning. One of them figure out, take general to specific, figure out what the, the issue is. And, um, see if you can't help him because it, it really does suck when you just have to beat horses through that, you know, like, cause you have to pull on them to get them to go to the mounting block. Cause they don't want to go. And, um, then when you're trying to get on them, you have to be really rough with them to get them to stand still at the mounting block or jump on at the go. And like, that's just no fun for anybody. This is supposed to be a sport where we're, you know, enjoying our horses and appreciating them and the horses aren't having to suffer as a result. So, um, yeah, and it may be an equipment change, you know, maybe his teeth hurt or maybe, um, the bit's too harsh or the saddle doesn't fit or the girth is pinching him somewhere. Like there are endless, endless possibilities, but I would really advise looking into that rather than just writing him off 
as a lazy horse. Um, it's not quite the answer you asked for. Um, as far as like little things that you could do to um, help him settle down, um, that only really works outside of those circumstances until pain is ruled out. Like if he had like a fear of the arena and was afraid of it, then you could work in the arena, you know, making it a good place, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't sound like he's scared of the arena. It's more like he's, because like you said, once he's in there, he's fine. It's just, he's balking. He's like, I don't want to go in there. Um, and that usually isn't like an, a, a fear response. It's usually a, um, I am predicting that what's about to happen is not going to feel great. Um, so yeah, I think it's really just a matter of, um, you know, it's really common. We don't take, um, horses athleticism seriously enough, you know, like prime athletes have all sorts of massage therapists, muscle therapists, chiropractors, physical therapists, like all of these things to help keep them in tip top shape. And it really gets undervalued in the horse world, except for at the top levels. But you wonder why those top level athletes compete as long as they do. It's because they're maintained. And, um, if they're not, then that's when they start to fall apart. And especially at the lower levels, when horses are more disposable, you know, they don't get that prime treatment. And then you see a lot of the behavioral issues, um, where they're pinning their ears and biting you or not wanting to go to the mounting block. And that is no hate on any one discipline. It is just the way it is. I mean, if the horse is not, you know, saying he wants to go do the job, you need to make it a job that he enjoys, whether that means helping his body out, helping him out, um, equipment wise, or maybe a change of career. Um, that's also something to consider. This horse may not enjoy playing polo. You know, I've ridden several horses that don't enjoy jumping. They don't enjoy trail rides. There are different things. And yes, you can make it a really good experience and you can work through training, but inherently some horses do prefer some careers over others, but, um, you can absolutely do positive reinforcement with him. And, um, I, I, horses can tell people apart and they know your scent, and they know your face, and um, they can recognize you, and you can become a stimulus for positive reinforcement and good things. Um, Because, like, when I walk past Zoe, she whinnies at me, and she nickers at me, and she's like, hey, dude, let's do some things. But if Sunny were to walk past her, or Jeremy, or any of the other people that work here, she's not going to nicker at them, because they don't train her. But I do. So, um, horses can absolutely tell you apart, and... um, you can totally work with them and it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, um, as far as like making a positive reinforcement change to ridden work, I don't really, based on what you've said, and I am not a vet and I'm not your trainer and I haven't seen it, so I can't give a definitive answer, but I would say that, um, for the most part, this doesn't sound like a, um, you know, a training error to me. I mean, unless the training is just really rough on the horse and it's just not a fun thing for him to do, um, then that could, like I said, be a call for a training change. Um, but yeah, I, it just, it sounds more like, um, potentially pain issue. And I mean, like I said, that could be due to how he's being ridden, but I don't know. So I hope that helps at least get some wheels turning. Um, yeah, I hope that it's helpful. On to the next question here from an anonymous listener. I work with a trainer who teaches traditionally in the sense that I still ride, jump, uh, trail ride event, um, use a bridle with a bit, etc. But um, who also teaches in a gentle way that does not and will never include whip, spurs, kicking, or any forms of punishment. 
we work on pressure and release yes it is all done with my horse's realm of understanding um and without any means of force or discomfort i know my horse is very content and happy and i've worked hard over many years to keep it that way my question is how or why would you argue that using gentle pressure and release while only going at the horse's pace is not as effective as using solely positive reinforcement some background as my horse is a 10-year-old off the track, got him at six, and he has only ever been ridden by a jockey and myself. Sounds like me and Zazu. He was very nervous and anxious and stressed when I got him, but I've worked through all of it by being simply patient and kind and letting him realize he's not in danger or completely on his own. Um, now I use positive reinforcement as awful as, as awful as often as I can, but like you, I can see how riders would feel stuck and they can't ride their horses. I found that going at my horse's pace without using um, any force but applying kind considerate pressure helped him not only learn quickly but made him confident doing the work i would love to hear your thoughts on this and maybe even talk about ways that other riders should incorporate positive reinforcement but also use pressure and release as a part of their training too when it's appropriate okay so there is a lot to unpack here but since i spent 20 minutes on the previous question i'm going to try and keep it concise um okay so um some things in here um while i agree that pressure and release can be used in a kind compassionate way um, saying that there is no um, discomfort at all is misunderstanding what pressure and release is um, for the most part because like when you're riding your horse um, you know like pulling on the bit is not going to be comfortable in any circumstance um, that doesn't mean it's bad or it's you know evil but um, it is uncomfortable so while you can use po or uh, negative reinforcement politely it um, don't get I would caution you to not get too carried away on being like I'm not using any force or any pressure blah 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 like um it, it definitely is still happening but that doesn't make it a bad thing you know because you'll lose arguments very quickly <laughs> saying things like that um but um you can absolutely use kind considerate pressure and um I think that negative reinforcement can be used in a way that helps clarify things, and I think that's the way it should be used, not in um, an increasing pressure sense. And while I say that, it is very idealistic. It's really difficult. Speaking as somebody who rides horses and has ridden for a long time, especially if you're somebody who is trained traditionally, it is very difficult not to use increasing pressure. And um, it's something that I strive for. I would rather not use increasing pressure. But um, that said, consistent pressure that doesn't increase isn't necessarily the best thing either. Um, because that's just as annoying, arguably. And um, frustrating and can create tension, that sort of thing. Um, but I think if negative reinforcement, if negative reinforcement is used well, um, I think that it is absolutely okay. I mean, it's the predominant way people um, ride, and I think the first step to creating a more ethical um, equestrian world is um, making negative reinforcement better. Um, I don't know that switching to positive reinforcement is going to happen anytime soon, and I don't necessarily know that it should switch entirely. Um, because I don't think that negative reinforcement should be entirely done away with. Um, but that is treading on a very careful ground. I think the way that it's used most common is not how we should be using it. Because I, I know, and it's not just my, you know, backyard Arkansas trainer. I mean, I had a really good trainer. And I had several different trainers here. And I have also ridden under the best of the best riders. Um, who were Olympians or 
um, you know, pre-St. George level dressage riders and FBI um, judges and shit. Like, I mean, I've ridden under a ton of people and that's not to brag, but that's to say that it is very common for increasing pressure to be used and a lot of force, a lot of correction and um, just like being really hard on horses. And I just, I don't think that that, um, that is the way that we want this sport to go because I think when we get really tied into competition, we kind of lose how important uh, the horse-human relationship is. And we all get into this as children who are in love with the animal, you know, and we're like, this is the most beautiful animal ever. I love them. I want to spend all my time learning about them and learning how to ride them and communicate with them. And somewhere along the way that gets lost in like, I want to win pretty ribbons and compete and be impressive. And that is like it just I think it needs to come back like there's nothing wrong with wanting to excel at competition but I think that there needs to be a balance between that and um, still being considerate and compassionate to the horse because some sometimes in most cases well I wouldn't say in most cases but in a lot of cases that I have seen um, it is it is often <laughs> that uh, the competition far outweighs the horse's well-being um, and I am not excluding myself in that so yeah, to answer your question, now that I've gone off on that tangent, um, I okay, the question is, how or why would you argue that using gentle pressure and release while only going at the horse's pace is not as effective as using solely positive reinforcement? So the first thing that I would say is it's very hard to use gentle negative reinforcement pressure and release. Um, if you can, and if you are very good at that and you have a trainer, which it sounds like you do, who is very compassionate and kind, um, that's more power to you. Most of us have not been trained that way and our muscle memory and our knee-jerk reactions are to get stronger. And I, again, I am not an angel. When I ride some of the client horses, you know, I am riding and I find myself getting stronger and I'm like, okay, no, (laughs) you have to help the horse understand, not just get stronger and force them to do it. And, um, so yeah, but like I've said in the past, um, when I was riding Zoe before her kissing spine diagnosis, um, is that I, I really do think that negative reinforcement can be used in a way that, um, is soft and kind and guiding, not so much as like, I'm exerting something that you don't like in order to remove it. Um, and then, reinforce your behavior that way the way that I use negative reinforcement and it's arguable it's like we're getting into you know like training theology here but um god it's so hard to explain there's many different facets but the the biggest thing to consider is what is most reinforcing to the horse if you use both negative reinforcement and positive what the reinforcer to the horse is is what matters because you can go around the arena and tell your horse to turn left by pulling on your left rein really hard until the horse finally submits and goes left and then you release and then you can click and treat but the thing that made the horse um turn was the pressure and the release of that pressure is what mostly reinforced the behavior not the treat that he got afterward i'm sure the treat plays some role but wildly overshadowed by the harsh pressure from the rain so in my training what I like to do is make the negative reinforcement if I can obviously it's always up to the horse and I'm not always successful Um, but I want to make the positive reinforcement more salient than the negative so um, you know just I'm so caught up because negative reinforcement is a little bit tricky because 
in order to do it, you first have to apply an aversive. Um, so like, like in the example of telling the horse to turn by pulling really hard on the behavior, it's arguable or on the, on the rain, it's arguable that you are punishing the going straight behavior. Um, when, you know, the initial cue is given to turn and the horse doesn't turn and you keep pulling your, it's arguable that you're punishing the going straight. And then when the horse turns, you're alleviating it because by definition, positive punishment is applying something the animal doesn't like to decrease behavior. And by definition, negative reinforcement is removing something that the horse doesn't like to increase behavior. So I hope that that is clear enough, but, um, it, it gets really tricky when you like start playing the quadrants game, um, of like, what is technically what, because it, I mean, logistically in order to use negative reinforcement, you have to first use positive punishment. And if the horse isn't like totally disturbed by it, and I mean, obviously there's a sliding scale of what is punishment, you know, slight pressure on a rein is not the same as whipping your horse. So, and arguably if it's not decreasing a behavior, then it's not punishment. But, um, that's something to consider that negative reinforcement, you have to first, you know, potentially apply positive punishment, but in, um, positive reinforcement it's arguable that you're the whole time that you're not reinforcing the behavior you're using um negative punishment but again that's where you get dangerous playing the um the quadrants game of like oh what is this and what is that um but it's it's all around that we all live in we're all constantly experiencing those four different things and obviously some negative punishers and some positive punishers don't affect us as much as others and it is the same to horses so on that logic, I, that's where I'm like, I think it's safer to use positive reinforcement because you're less likely to do harm. But I, like I said, I think if you're educated and you're with a good trainer and you're doing it well and ethically and humanely, um, then I think it's okay. But, um, I also mostly prescribe to the Lima principle, the least intrusive, minimally aversive, where, um, you start at the bottom of the humane hierarchy, you know, um, or I don't know, I've heard some arguments that it's actually a circle and loopy and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, you start by, um, making sure the horse isn't any, in any pain, that he's able to do what you're going to ask. Then you set up the scenario for success. You make sure the environment is good for training new things or what have you. And then you use positive reinforcement, and then you move up from there all the way up to positive punishment. But I like to reserve those for um, emergency scenarios where we're going to die unless it happens. Um, but that is a rare, a rare day. But for training, um, usually I like to start with positive reinforcement. Um, but unless, like, written behaviors to me are a little bit more difficult and a little confusing because um, in order to get the written behavior, um, you know, it's, it's hard to give your horse, like, a hand cue. And you can give a verbal cue, but, I mean, if you're somebody who's trying to compete and you compete in dressage, you can't give a verbal cue, which sucks. Why did they do that? Um, they're like, it's cool if you kick your horse, but you can't say a word. Like, what? how on earth does that make any sense? But fine, Yusuf. Um, anyway, uh, so I don't know. I just, I think it's a lot, um, a lot harder to abuse um, positive reinforcement than it is negative reinforcement. I just think it's really easy to get harsh in that paradigm and like I said, I'm no angel to it. 
but that's my main argument but using gentle pressure and release if it's done well I mean I think it can be as effective as using um, strictly positive reinforcement and vice versa but I mean like if it's just as effective why not use the one that's positive reinforcement you know so I mean I get it but everybody comes from different strokes if that's what you prefer that's what you prefer um, I'm going to take a break here and turn on a light because it's getting very dark in my house as the sun's setting. And I'm going to take a drink and get back. So it'll be a second for you guys. Okay, so during my break, I realized that I forgot to answer the second half of that question. How do you use positive reinforcement, um, but when you use negative reinforcement as well, or pressure and release? Um, you can you can do both, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much my goal with um, Zoe is to do both. Um, but more emphasis on the positive reinforcement and use negative reinforcement more as guidance, like with a rain, you know, a rain cue. Um, but I would break it down more so than just like, I'm going to pull on this rain. And then when she gives me the full head turn behavior, then I'm going to click. Um, I would be like any, any indication that she's going to turn into that would get a click. And then we would gradually up the criteria from there, not, um, such a jump, but, um, it's fine either way, but that's just how I would do it. Um, you can also just entirely keep your sessions separate and just ride traditionally and um, do positive reinforcement on the ground. That's also an option. And often for new be- or new beginner, that's a little redundant, for new positive reinforcement trainers, I highly recommend that because it gets very tricky trying to do it from the saddle. I, it's still not something that I consider myself good at. Um, so I would definitely recommend... Um, keeping them separate until you really feel like you've got a good grasp on what you're doing. Um, okay. Next question. My horse, um, is, oh, I should say it's from listener Kristen. My horse Zeus, I have been working with uh, positive reinforcement. Thanks to you. Oh, sweet. For about five months now, so far he can target smile, yield his foreign hindquarters back up with visual and or verbal cues. Um, currently I'm teaching him to roll a ball around with his nose and to stay slash ground tie. Very, very cool. Zoe has yet to learn a ball thing, but I definitely have not um, tried to work on that, but that is super cool. It's a very fun thing to work on. Um, Something I've always struggled with, however, is keeping his attention. All he wants to do when I pull him out of his grassy pasture is eat grass. I can ask a cue two to five times, but, and he won't pay attention to me. It makes our training sessions go super slow and we don't get very much done. Sometimes I will grab his lead rope so that he doesn't have enough slack to get grass and he'll do one to three tricks for me and then I'll go right back to the grass. The only places on the property without grass are the two darn arenas, but people are almost always riding or have a lesson in them and I don't want to get in the way. There's also the gravel parking lot, but that's not very comfy or safe place to train. Do you have any ideas? Um on how I can keep his attention. It's not a huge deal, but I wish he was more engaged. I see your videos of Zoe participating so enthusiastically and I get a bit jealous. There are reasons for that. I'll explain in a moment. Um, Things I've tried using a variety of treats in each session, oats, carrots, horse treats, training in his paddock. He's more interested there, but the other gellings will mob me. Um, He does not care for scratches, and I don't use alfalfa pellets anymore because he has choked on them twice. I'm just about to stuff loads of grass in my fanny pack. Sorry, UK listeners, I know that's a swear word, but that is not a swear word here, so we'll say bum bag. Um, Anyway, so lots to, lots to get to here. So very cool. You sound like you've been really successful with him, especially teaching hind quarter and uh, forehand yielding is not easy. Um, So mad props to you there. But I also feel you on how frustrating this is because um, Zoe looks super engaged and um participating in the 
pasture that we work in because she has access to that grass all the time and it's nothing new and she's not super excited about it and um you know when I go in there the alfalfa pellets are the novelty and she's like oh my god that's what I want so um she's super game uh and she also you know has usually had hay and grain and um I usually work pretty close to feed time so that she's not like hyper um excited about the alfalfa pellets because sometimes she can get a little bit over the top and it's annoying because then I have to make our training sessions about staying calm and relaxed and I'm like for now the stuff that I'm having to work on with her rehab is just easier to do around feed time because then she's less um anxious and excitable about the food but um yeah so that may be something that could work to your advantage if you wait until feed time um, and then let him eat his dinner and work with him immediately after so he's not like super, super motivated to get to grass, but I know that can be inconvenient to do. Um, another thing to do, it's a great idea to just use the grass. Um, if it's a really high value reinforcer to him, which it looks like it is, like he might be able to work for that um, because there's this thing called contra freeloading. Um, and you can look it up. It's C-O-N-T-R-A, freeloading. And um, it occurs when the horse has access to everything. So um, pretty much all things are equal. So you have grass and the ground has grass. And the horse can either choose to eat for free off of the ground or to work for it and engage his mind. And um, animals and humans alike, we love enrichment. We love things that entertain us and um, bring enrichment to our lives. So often the animals will choose to work for it, which is a really fun thing for us and really cool to observe because it's like, oh my God, it's all around you, but you're still wanting to work for it. Um, but with that, you know, when you start out, you might have to make it a really high rate of reinforcement because, um, often what happens when you're starting to lose horses, when they're not really paying attention or they're not really interested, it's usually one of two or three things. One, the reinforcer isn't something that the animal likes, um, or the reinforcer is not a high enough value. So your pellets may not be, um, stronger, oh wait, uh, or your treats might not be higher reinforcing than the grasses especially like this time of year the grass is really good and they're like yes this is what I want um so your treats may not be overpowering it or they may not be something that the horse is super into two um you're not reinforcing enough the horse is um like having to do too much for not enough reward and they're like I'm not doing this if you're not going to reward like I'd like to get paid for my work just as much as you do um and the third thing is that your horse is confused or you're asking too much of them something that I have been subject to and a lot of people that I see like sending videos um something that they tend to do is they're they hold like say for target training they hold the target out and the horse moves towards it and they click and treat. And then the next time they up the criteria, it's only been one time and they up the criteria to the horse must touch it and say the horse maybe bumps at that time and they're good. And you're like, okay, the horse knows to touch it. The second time the horse kind of like wanders around, sniffs your hand, sniffs your body, maybe sniffs the stick that the target's on. And then he just looks at you like, did I do it? And the horse is confused. That should be an indication like, okay, we need to back it down. But sometimes what'll happen is people will just stand there and wait and you it's it's nuanced because if you're a really good trainer and you know that your horse will start offering behaviors and will start trying to guess at what you're doing um then it's okay to wait but if the horse is an unsavvy clicker horse and you know maybe you're a, a novice trainer it's not really good to wait you should probably 
or you'd be better off just backing down and being like, okay, I'm going to ask for less now. Just look at the target and then click for that. Um, and then gradually work your way up to the nose is getting closer and closer and closer. And then the nose is touching it. Make sure the horse or the nose is touching it consistently. Now, then you can start incorporating changes of direction, like moving the orientation of the target around, you know, up low, whatever. Um, so those things. So the third thing you're asking too much, um, or, um, the horse just isn't like, he's like, I'm not getting enough for this, or I don't know what you're asking. I don't know how to get the reward. And this is easier and more fun because what we're doing is not fun. So, um, those are some things to really consider. And I know that it can be really hard to like, look at your training and be like, uh, am I doing those things? And I obviously don't know you. I've never seen you ride or, um, work with your horse. I mean, um, so not an attack on you by any means. Those are just things that I like to cover first when you're having this problem. Um, but like you said, it might be a really good idea to just grab grass. I know it can be annoying to like sit there and pick it, but if that's what he's going for, then you can do that. And, um, you know, when you start working with him and you're trying to train whatever you're working on, um, keep your rate of reinforcement really high. So he's getting a lot of that grass. And then gradually as the session goes on, you can like see if you can back off a little bit and you don't have to do so much. And hopefully by then he'll be like, okay, this is fun. I understand what I'm doing. I'm successful and I'm good at it. And that is something so important is you have to make sure that the horse is staying successful throughout the session. And if ever you get to a point where you're like, I don't know how to make you successful here. I'm a little confused or whatever. You can always just leave a pile on the ground and be like, here, this is yours. I'm going to go sit and come up with the game plan. And um, that can be a little bit easier. So I hope that helps um, somewhat with that. I definitely know how frustrating it is when I take Zoe into um, the big field where we keep our uh, our jumps. She, um, she tends to want to graze for a while. And I mean, that might be something else you can do is, um, if it's a pasture, you can turn him out or just graze him for a little while and, um, maybe have a start of session cue. Like maybe you just graze him without your fanny pack on and then maybe you go get it and come back or, um, you know, something that's a cue that like, okay, I'm going to start trying to train you now. Um, but maybe let him have his fill of it first. If you can turn him out there for a while, let him have it. But it's always going to be um, a little bit more difficult to train in a new place. And sometimes you just have to see if you can let them get acclimated for a while. But I know it can be annoying because I am a person with ADHD and a very busy brain and likes to be doing something at all times. And hand grazing is the bane of my existence. I know, I know, I know that it's bonding. I know that it like horses graze together and that's the most bonding experience for them. But I just, I hate it so much. I do not like standing there holding a lead rope, walking around, watching them eat grass. It is so boring. So usually I have to bring a book and like sit near them <laughs> and just do that. And, um, Zoe, like the other day I followed her around in the field while she, um, grazed. And then eventually she wandered into the arena and I followed her in there and I just let her walk around. And eventually she came up to me and she smiled. And that's her cue for like, I would like to start training now. Please give me food. <laughs> and, um, so I was like, yes, a wise trainer, I will give you food now for that. And, um, so I don't know if that's something to consider as well. Okay. On to the next question. How many have we done so far? Three. Dear God, it's been 40 minutes. I'm so sorry. This is going to be an extra long one. So back up. Um, also, this email is going to be a super long one. I was talking about the episode. It's going to be long, but okay. This email is long. Um, from an anonymous listener. 
I started riding at my current barn because it was very much competition oriented and at the time all I wanted was to win, but sometimes it's too much for me. The words rip his teeth out and stick your spurs in her are heard too often in my opinion. Uh, all that said, my goal in the horse world was to make it to the top and have a farm of my own, the whole nine yards of a horsey kid's dream. I'm going to stop reading for a moment and butt in here. Um, that's exactly my training experience. While I had trainers that would like, you know, try and balance it out with the kind, I can't tell you how many times I got told to rip his face off, rip his teeth out, um, hit him harder. Even um, recently, like some of the rides that I had um, prior to a show we're just like trying to be vague um we're just like you need to really beat him you know dig into him tell him who's boss and i was just like yeah, i'm not going to do that um but it's it is really hard to deal with especially when you're like i don't want to beat my horse i'm trying to get this thing to like me okay um but i also i empathize with the dream of wanting to compete and be good at it and make it um okay Continuing on your email here. I lease a mare from a friend's family and we compete in the jumper. She seems to enjoy it, but I'm not very good at gauging whether she likes it or she's just conditioned into going with it. For example, sometimes it's hard to tell whether her relaxing into the bridle, saying, yes, I'm comfortable here, or saying, I feel helpless. This is the only thing I feel as though I can do. My first question is, are there any general signs of um, genuine relaxation Oh my God, relaxation that I can look for and then reinforce. I've tried to reinforce her as much as I can for licking and chewing and dropping her head when I'm holding her. Um, okay, so that last bit is a little bit confusing because reinforce, um, releasing, I'm assuming, um, and then dropping her head when you're holding her, I'm assuming, like, when you're maintaining connection. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just using negative reinforcement correctly, um, when the horse is showing signs of relaxation, like you said. Licking and chewing means the horse is coming down from their sympathetic nervous system um, where they're like on high alert and maybe something stress them out, even if it's very temporary. Like if you notice like a horse when they're grazing, if they pick their head up really fast and they look out into the distance and then just about like the time that right before they go back to grazing, they'll lick and chew. It's because they're coming down from that moment of a little bit stress. Obviously horses can lick and chew when they've got like something in their teeth or they're chewing, but I'm talking about context outside of that when, um, because when horses get anxious, they stop eating and, um, it's just like humans when you're really scared or something's like got you on edge, um, your like secondary body processes shut off like your, um, digestive system. So like for me, when I would used to compete and I would go run cross country, my mouth would get like dirt dry, like so dry, right? When I was in the start box, because I was kicking into my parasympathetic or my sympathetic nervous system and I was stressed and my body was like, okay, we don't need to digest things right now. We need to focus on the threat here. <laughs> and so it stops, I mean, my body stopped producing saliva and I was like, oh my God, I can't, my mouth is so dry. <laughs> um, so, um, that's the same thing with horses. And so, you know, you know, maybe they had a bite of grass if they were grazing and they resume eating when the threat is gone. Um, or their body starts producing saliva again, and then they lick and chew to kind of clear that. Um, but so those are signs that the horse is relaxing. It is a good thing, but it does not mean the horse is physically digesting information. I hate when people say that is not, where's the science? <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's a sign of relaxation for sure. Um, it's, a, it's a book that I really recommend reading for stuff like this is Language Signs and Calming Signals of Horses by Raquel Dreisma. You can type it in on Amazon. It's, um, 
I think it's like 20 or 30 bucks. Such a good book. Like I said in the previous episode, it's a little dry because it's very scientific, but it literally walks you through every single type of, you know, behavior that's all scientific, studied, and it has been done following the scientific method. Like, studying a big group of horses, paying attention to their behaviors and noticing trends and um, what could be the potential causes. Um, So things like that, really recommend reading that, especially if you're wanting to educate yourself on signs of relaxation. That book has a list. Um, But yeah, it's, um, it's difficult. But a horse that's really relaxed under saddle will have a big swinging gait um, a soft back top line and, um, will be really soft in the bridle. Um, you can turn them pretty easily. They're really supple either direction, but this is also going to be a horse that has, you know, little to no health issues and, uh, throw a rock and a horse has a health issue. Um, you know, they're (laughs) fragile beings, you know, like, just like us. I mean, we get locked up in either direction and you're like, okay, I need to, you know, get a massage or (laughs) get a chiropractor to look at my neck, why it's so tight. Um, so, you know, those things help with that as well. Um, but it it can be difficult to tell, but generally a horse that is, I feel helpless and this is the only thing I feel like as though I can do. Those horses are generally like pretty lazy behind the leg and just like disconnected from the world. That would be the, um, learned helplessness phase. But, um, horses that are trained, um, in negative reinforcement generally know, um, how they're supposed to carry themselves. Um, I mean, at least that they're trained in a more correct way. They know the places where the rider is going to release or have a softer hand, um, where they need to have their head set. And then if they come up, then it's going to, the pressure is going to increase. There's going to be more leg. There's going to be more rain pressure. And then when the horse drops its head, it, that all relaxes. Um, so yeah, I mean, but any level of like exercising, working out, using yourself is not going to be entirely comfortable. So, um, but that goes for both humans and horses. Anyway, trying to burn through these questions quickly and it's just not helping or happening. Um, okay. Continuing this email back to the competition issue I mentioned before, I enjoy competing in the jumpers, but would love to continue with her. But there is a recurring problem, both on and off property. When she's tied, being tacked up, not doing anything in her saddle or is alone, she seems incredibly stressed and uncomfortable. She communicates this by moving around nonstop and uh, not always dangerously, but never being able to stand still. I can't leave her alone in the aisle, cross-tied, long enough to put my saddle away, which is a 30-second trip. She dances, paws, and tries to turn around on the ties. She's broken um, some ties, left marks on the ground from her shoes, and successfully wrapped herself up and then spooked in the ties because she turned all the way around. Dear God, that is scary. Um, I've tried putting her in the wash stall, which has three walls and one opening, but she has, uh, or so she has nothing to turn around to, but to no avail. I've also tried, um, talking to her the whole time I'm working with her on the ground, making the tacking and untacking process as fast and efficient as possible and making a sound and giving her a treat and scratching her sweet spot when she stands. Treating and scratching seems to work sometimes, but it's often she stands for five seconds or so and then continues to dance. I know that these um, behaviors take time, but it's not something I'm sure I have because I lease her, not own her. In the ties, it can become dangerous. She might swing her hind end around and catch me between her and the wall when I don't have enough time to jump out of the way or pound my foot when she's pawing. I don't want to hit her or reprimand her strongly because that only seems to escalate the situation, not calm her down. As it normally would. (laughs) I mean, if you get hit when you're stressed, you're only going to get more stressed. Um, In response to her moving around or pawing, her owners have regularly smacked her on the stomach. Jesus Christ. 
I hate that so much. Um, a bit further back and down where it's sensitive and yelled her name. They advised me to do the same because it quote unquote distracts her. That's such stupid logic. Oh my God. Okay. Keep it together, Joel. That's, <laughs> I, I feel your irritation there. It's a uh, God. Okay. I don't know how much truth there is, uh, to that, but I don't agree with them beating her because she's stressed as you should. Um, it should be mentioned, I think, that her owners are not bad people. My trainer does this sometimes with her horses, and I've tried to keep her away from my lease. Um, and I'm still with this trainer because I believe her knowledge of riding is extensive and helpful to me. But her ground manners, so to speak, are not um, where I would agree with them. I think her owners learned from our trainer that that's the only way to stop the horse from performing an undesirable behavior. Okay. This brings me to my main question. Are there any ways I can help her to de-stress using positive reinforcement, ways that won't affect her in a major way um, when our lease ends and I uh, stop working with her? For example, when I'm no longer her primary handler, I don't want her to offer a behavior or calmness she would have previously gotten rewarded for, but instead receive nothing. I've heard that mixing positive and negative reinforcement isn't good for the horse as it can get confusing for them, so I'm at a bit of a loss. I want to make this incredible mare more comfortable because she's truly a wonder horse. I love her to death, and I wish more than anything that we could buy her, but other circumstances are keeping us from doing so. We are not in a position to move barns, and we are in an area that this kind of treatment at our budget for riding is more common than I'd like. So this is a highly common circumstance. Incredibly, incredibly common. Um, especially in my area and other areas that I've been to. All my friends are from around the world, and this is not uncommon um, in barns. So you're. it sounds like you're really doing the best you can, and you're trying to, um, like, really hear your horse and be there for her and um, listen, and it, that's not an easy thing to do, first of all. Um, you know, when you have a horse that is stressed and acting up and you have everyone around you telling you that you need to be violent with them and hit them, um, which is violent, by the way, like smacking a horse in the way that you are describing, especially is violent, obviously giving a poke on the nose, not violent, but not great either. I don't recommend doing that, but, um, smacking them on the belly and screaming at them is violent and should never be used in a training scenario. Um, Obviously, if you're about to get pinned up against the wall, you have to do what you have to do. But in order to help the horse, um, there there has to be a difference. Um, like I said earlier, I think that punishment um, should only be reserved for, like, you're about to die circumstances. Um, because I just don't think it has a place in training. It, it doesn't help the learner learn anything new. All they know is wrong, wrong, wrong. They don't learn, hey, this is what I need you to do. You're just telling them they're wrong the entire time. And, um, that is what's frustrating about stuff like that is it's like people just assume that you can just beat an animal into submission, but is that really the animal you want? Is that really the relationship you want? Um, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, um, but it just, it's frustrating that people still think like this. Um, and I get where it comes from because I mean, like you said, these aren't inherently bad people. It's what they've been taught and what they've been brainwashed, frankly, and indoctrinated to think I was one of them. I thought the exact same thing. I thought that I had to dominate my horse in order to have a good relationship with her. But instead, I have a quite calm, respectful horse that is now more apt to want to be with me because I treat her differently. And I don't force my, you know, agenda on her. And we work together. Um, and that is what we need to do with this mare here. So what I would recommend is um, if you are able, and I hope that you can find some time to do this, um, if you can get to your lesson an hour earlier, or if you can, um, you know, uh, oh my God, come out 
other times when you're not going to ride and you're not on a time crunch, work with her. Because what you may be doing inadvertently in trying to be speedy and trying to, you know, hustle around her so she's not going to panic in the cross ties is your energy is so high because you're, you know, anxious and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to stress her out. and I want to get done and get her out of the cross ties. What you may be doing is hyping the energy up around her and that's stressing her out even more. Um, so what I think needs to be done is when you're not on a time crunch, you're not worried about, you know, having to get on and having to ride and, you know, not upset your trainer or anything is work with her and, um, take her to the cross ties, um, or take her to the aisle and anywhere where you can get, um, a still response. So you might even have to start out in her stall or in her pasture, um, and you can work on a verbal cue or a hand cue or something like that. Or um, I would probably use a verbal cue, um, just like stand or something like that. And um, when she's just standing, reward her. And Or you could um, also use a mat, um, like a floor mat, and train her to stand on the mat and put both front feet on it and just stand. And then reward, reward, reward. It's such a good place to be. We want both of your feet on the mat. Oh my God, it's so good. You're so calm. You're so chill. And, um, she can just stand there and it's such a good place to be. And then if you put it anywhere, you will have to back up a few steps. But if she knows, like, you know, if she's out in her pasture, you can throw the mat around and have her go to it. And then when she's standing there, she's so, she's such a good girl. She's getting all the treats. So good. And then, you know, if you take her into the aisleway in the barn where maybe she gets a little bit stressed, you put that mat down and she's like, oh my God, I know what to do. And then you can give her a bunch of treats and she may still be a little bit anxious, um, because that's you know, previously been a spot that made her anxious, but, um, you can make it a really good place to be and, um, just give her lots of treats. I wouldn't tie her to begin with, obviously, because she'll pull back, but, um, just stand there and reward her and make it like a super good place to be. It's calm. We're not in a hurry. Everything's okay. And if she gets overwhelmed, you can take her out and back up a few steps and it may take a while. And I know that it's, you know, you're like, you don't have a whole lot of time to do this because she's not your horse, but it is something that's worthwhile and can change this horse's entire life and also be safer for you and future riders. So, um, I would really recommend that. And eventually you can work your way up to the wash stall. Um, because actually I understand what you're trying to do with having the walls, but horses are inherently claustrophobic animals. And that may be working against you where she's like, Oh my God, I can't see anything. I can't get away. Um, so it may be better to leave that for last and just make the aisle something really good. And maybe you can even walk her through the aisle, um, you know, just up and down and giving her treats and you can periodically stop and give her treats, really reward her for standing still, but just make it a really good place to be. And if she's too uncomfortable to stand still, then, I mean, like I said, you can probably just walk her and make it really good, calm, relaxing, try to pick a day when there's not a bunch of people coming in and out. Um, and you can work up to that. I know it sounds tedious and frustrating, but like, like I said, it, it could really change this horse's life. And um, if you can fix this behavior, then people can stop beating her. And then you can be like, look what happens. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes in situations like this, I'm not advocating for doing anything behind owner's backs. But sometimes yeah, it might be to the benefit of the horse if you just like kind of do it well. And then you're like, look what I did. You know, look how good your horse is. Um, Again, not advocating for working behind people's backs, but I think in some circumstances it might be a little bit justified if it's for the betterment of the horse, especially if they might be a little resistant because they're like, no, 
smacking works. <laughs> and you're like, but the horse isn't calming down though. <laughs> um, so trying to make it a really good place for her to be, all she has to do is stand still. That's it. And that can be a really hard thing for some horses to do. So um, another thing you could do if you don't want to do the mat training or a vocal cue you're not really comfortable with, you can um, use a stationary tie. A lot of people use a, like a, a boat buoy. I used a water bottle and <laughs> I tied a piece of hay string around the cap and then tied it around the fence and taught my horses to bump it and they would just stand. Mac and Zoe both knew how to do this. Um, uh, when I would groom them, I would just like be in their paddock and that's where I started teaching it. I would tie it to a tree branch or <laughs> the fence and they would touch it and I would click and treat and then I would just go about grooming them while they chewed and then they would touch it again and I would click and treat and then you can take that anywhere just like you could with the mat tie it up and the horse is like oh my god I know what to do here and they're not just at a total loss with all the stuff that's going on and they're like I can just bump this thing and then I get a treat and for horses eating is inherently relaxing if the horse is eating it's usually a good sign they're calming down they're trying to calm themselves and um so having your horse eat, it can bring down into that parasympathetic nervous system where they're relaxing and um, then you're just desensitizing well and you're teaching the horse that something that used to be really scary is not so scary anymore. So I would really recommend working through that because I, I definitely understand how that is stressful for both you and the horse and you're trying to do the right thing by making it easy on her, by trying to give her treats, but I think it might just be too much when you're already in the cross ties to just be giving her periodic treats. Um, it's it's not working. I think you need to back down a step and um, try to be more systematic with it. Something that you could do um, is like write down, and even if you want to email me, like write down um, the breaking down the behavior into the smallest possible, easiest thing that she can accomplish, like being in her pasture standing still. Can she stand still in her pasture? And then working up from there, step by step by step. And if you want to break that down and then send it to me, I can, like, help you. Like, if you missed a step, I can help you work through that. Um, but, yeah, I would be more than happy to. But um, I really think that you could help this horse. And like you said, you love her and she is so special to you. Um, but, again, another thing to address in your question here is... Um, will it be confusing her for her when you stop working with her? Ideally, if you can get her over the fear of the cross ties, it shouldn't matter that she's not getting reinforced. Um, usually, like, I mean, maybe, um, I don't know, it's so tricky. Um, you can, once you get her over it, you can start backing off. I think that that would probably be the most responsible thing to do. It kind of sucks. But um, if you know her next owner isn't going to use positive reinforcement isn't going to use treats then um what you can do is once you're really confident with her and she's standing in the cross ties asleep um you can just like slow down how frequently you're giving the treats until you back off to where maybe you're just giving really good scratches that are like really deep really good and then you can back off there to where the, just being in the cross ties is an inherently good thing she just likes being in the cross ties and that's something that you can do like just like you condition the clicker 
Um, the clicker is conditioned to be a good thing. The horses like the sound of the clicker. I'm conditioned to be a good thing for with most of my horses. When they see me, they come running because they're like, good things happen around you. So making the cross ties a good place to be, you can condition them to be somewhere that the horse likes to be. And then you can gradually back off and lessen the amount of reinforcement you're doing. And that way she won't be like pawing and expecting it from other people, which could lead them to start beating her in the cross ties, which could restart the whole cycle again. Um, so that might be the most responsible thing to do. Ideally, you'd be able to um, pass on to her lease that the cross ties have been an issue for her and that they should be conscientious of that and learn how to clicker train and properly reinforce to maintain that behavior being good. But um, I think that the first option might be your best bet if um, you're pretty confident nobody's going to continue your work. Um, so difficult situation. I hate that. Not owning your horse is difficult and it's, <laughs> it can be really tricky, but, um, I hope that that helps. I wouldn't worry too much about like mixing negative reinforcement, um, and all that because, um, horses can tell context clues. Like if you have a fanny pack on and then you get on and ride, um, and that comes off, they're like, oh, okay, we're doing, you know, negative reinforcement now we're riding. Um, but when we're on the ground, she's got that bum bag on and, um, this means it's positive reinforcement time, you know? Um, so horses are really good at context clues and they can pick that up pretty easily. Okay. We have approximately hold one, two, three, four, five questions left. I'm going to try to knock out some shorter ones, um, here. Okay. Listener Riley asks, my mare foaled in March unknowingly because I bought her pregnant in the fall. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and the foal is quite wacko. She loves cuddles and scratches, but she also loves trying to play with you. When she kicks, it never hits me, but it's close enough that I feel unsafe. Do you know a way to prevent her from doing this, or is it something she's just going to have to grow out of? My trainer says take a whip with me and just smack her when she gets too close, but I really don't want to hurt her. Okay, so unfortunately, <laughs> I don't exactly have the best answer to this question. Um, our cult Astro has been like this and has been like this since he came home from the vet. <laughs> he is a psycho. And anytime you walk out there, he comes running and he is just ready to play. And, um, so it can be difficult. And, um, he fold out in March as well, I believe. Um, so, He's, he's calmed down a little bit, but he's still so mouthy. It's not like he wants to bite you. He just comes at you like open mouthed, like, and then I'm like, I don't want to hit him because I don't want to make him head shy, but I also don't want him to bite me. So I usually just end up kind of like putting my hand on his face and just like holding it there and not like pushing him away and just like kind of hanging on to him and then scratching him when he shuts his mouth, um, with my other hand, like on his wither where he really likes it. Um, so that's something you can do is just to, um, try and reward calm behavior. But I have also noticed that it is very difficult for me to walk away because I'm, I'm all good as long as I'm standing there petting him and teaching him like how to walk on lead rope or, um, pick up his feet. Like all of that is fine and great. But the second I try to walk away, it's like I have this little horse cutting me off and, or chasing me, bucking and rearing and stuff. And it is scary. I feel you, especially when it's big, warm blood colts like those two. Um, they're huge. And they're bigger than our five-month-old thoroughbred filly. So I'm like, um, yeah, I'm a little afraid of you when you come galloping at me and throwing your hind end around. I would rather not die today with a full-shaped hoof print in my forehead. Um, so I definitely feel you there. It is scary. Um, I don't agree with taking a whip necessarily because, I mean, you want your 
people to like you and be around you. But I mean, if you genuinely feel unsafe and like you're going to get hurt, it might be okay to take it just for your own like mental benefit and you don't have to hit them. You can just wave it around and I'm sure that would be enough. But, um, but that, like I said, I don't really like to punish unless it's absolutely necessary. So, um, yeah, I mean, unless it just makes you feel better. Um, I don't take one when I go out with our Colts, but that's usually because I know that if they come running at me, I can usually just kind of like stand my ground, stand fully facing them and put my hand out and just be like, no, and then they'll stop. Um, and that's just kind of using body language to be like, uh, that's not, and, um, I'm not here to play. And, um, they're usually okay with that. I'm not sure what realm that falls into as far as like punishment or anything goes but I was kind of like let's stop your energy please um but maybe that is somewhat helpful I know that's not exactly what you want but as they get bigger and a little bit older and more mature it can be easier to start working on that especially when they can start taking treats um you can start like really reinforcing behavior I think scratches are great but sometimes it's a little bit cumbersome for me um sometimes I much prefer giving treats but everybody's different so you might be really good with that but I definitely would not undervalue scratches at this early stage like with Astro I've really been working on his um nippiness so I hope that helps um some way um but yeah I mean just when you're working with her try and keep your energy really low and if you are gonna like exit and she you feel like she's gonna chase you maybe you can just like take one step at a time like um plan ahead not get out of there when you like absolutely must go but um you know plan your sessions when you're working with her for if it takes you 30 minutes to get back to the fence um plan for that and plan when you're working with her to 30 minutes out, start heading back towards the fence and taking one step and she can come with you and you can keep working on things just kind of as you get there. And then at the end, you can sort of slip out. Usually um, with our horses, because they're in a big field, um, I get to a certain point and they're like, mm, I'm a little too far away from mom. Peace. And um, that works, but I hope that helps some somewhat. I also have not totally figured out the solution to that. So sorry that I'm not super helpful there. Um, Listener Ava asks, so I've just gotten into positive reinforcement. I have a question. I have a quarter horse mare that gains weight very easily. If I don't consistently work her, she gains weight very fast. She stays in the stall during the day and gets turned out at night and gets minimal feed and hay. As I'm learning, oh, I have you on. As I'm learning and researching about positive reinforcement, I haven't been working with her and she's gained weight. So my question is, what do I do with, with her during this downtime? I don't want to keep using negative reinforcement, which was what she was originally trained with, but I don't want to start using positive reinforcement until I'm educated and have a good idea of it and everything that goes into it. Okay, so here, this is something that I experienced with Zoe um, after she got back from colic surgery. Um, You know, I started working with positive reinforcement and doing all that jazz, but then she started to founder because we had really good grass that year. And she got really heavy and um, her feet were getting screwed up. And I was like, I have to exercise her. Like we backed off her feet, but I was like, she's got to get some exercise. Um, And so that it just might be something you have to do out of necessity until you can get like a really good feed regimen worked out to where maybe your horse only gets hay and like a ration balancer or something. You know, if he's 
um, gaining weight super easily, you might not even need to feed grain and you can just do like a ration balancer type of thing where you're just making sure he gets the nutrients. He's not getting in the hay. Um, but some horses only ever need hay and alfalfa. If it's really good hay, um, that has all the nutrients you need. I would test the grass first or the hay, make sure they're getting what they need. Um, and that's where the ration balancers and supplements and things like that, vitamins come into play. Um, but that could help potentially. But also, um, well, because I also would like to say horses are not designed to eat two square meals a day or three square meals a day and just eating grain. They're designed to eat over long periods of time. So a natural forage diet is preferred, but that's not what I'm able to do here. So that's the reason that I'm not doing it because I don't have the means. Um, but if you could, I would go for that. Um, but also, like, I would encourage you not to feel bad about needing to use negative reinforcement training. There is a way to do it that is kind and soft. And if it is, you, you have to ask yourself the ethical question, like, do I either let my horse sit and founder um, until I can figure out his nutrition or do I have to exercise him so he keeps his health, you know, because we can't explain to our horses that this is, you know, that lunging is going to be the answer to fixing their health problems. Um, so sometimes you just have to make that executive decision. And if that's the only way you have the means to now, then I think that you should do that. Um, I mean, I obviously don't encourage like chasing him and whipping him and just like beating the snot out of him until he, you know, lunges in a circle. But I mean, if he lunges politely, like I would go ahead and do that. Or if you need to ride, um, you can do that as well. But just having some sort of exercise program is okay. Like, you can do light rides or, like, if you're really uncomfortable using negative reinforcement, like, until you figure out that balance, you can do really light rides or just lunge and um, try to keep that weight off while you figure everything out. But um, something that I like that Alexander Curlin says, I don't entirely agree with everything she says, but I do respect her as one of the first people <laughs> that started clicker training with horses, is that don't throw out something um, without having something to replace it. So you don't necessarily have to not work with your horse at all because you don't know how to do everything. Um, and it can get messy and tricky when you're trying to overlap and stuff. And I mean, I definitely threw the baby out with the bathwater. I was like, I can't even pull Zoe out of her paddock because I don't want to use negative reinforcement. Um, and that's okay too. That is an okay mindset to have, but it is annoying when you're like, I don't really know how to train these things. So I can't do anything yet. Um, so I totally get you there. But if it is in the best interest of the welfare of your horse, then I think you are justified in still using negative reinforcement if it is something you are comfortable continuing doing. Um, I hope that answers that question. Okay, one of the last shorter ones before we get to the two last long ones here. Um, listener Bianca asks, um, my question is how do you know when your horse understands the clicker if they have always been super polite around food? This is a good question. Rules of the game, um, it, rule for everyone listening, rules of the game is what Elise, um, BA or Muckenstrom BA yard. That's what, um, she calls like manners, having the horse, like turn his head away or have it in the center of his body when you're working around food, uh, anti-mugging behavior. Um, so, She's calling it the rules of the game, I assume, from reading Elise or um, watching her videos. So, rules of the game took about five minutes to teach my horse, but I'm wondering if he hasn't associated the clicker with reinforcement because he was already polite around food, so his introduction to clicker training was so quick. 
Um, sometimes when I click, my horse is not interested in getting reinforcement. Other times he pricks his ears and he looks at me like he's waiting for it. How do I know if he truly understands what it means? If you want more detail, and I do, <laughs> um, I recently started using positive reinforcement to train him. I'd only had him for about a week and he was super polite around food. What I'm using is his reinforcement. Um, because of, uh, this, it took about five minutes for him to understand the rules of the game. However, I'm not sure if he truly understands the clicker. I'm using a mixture of pressure and release and positive reinforcement and groundwork because those are the cues he understands. He's not always responsive to the click though. Like he doesn't know what it means. And, but two minutes later, I'll click for a behavior again and he'll prick his ears and look to me for the reinforcement. Um, I know there are loads of books out there and I'm slowly making my way through them, but I haven't found anything relating to this yet. Okay, so the first thing I want to address is when you're first learning about positive reinforcement and you're first learning how to train it, I would really recommend not using negative reinforcement in conjunction. I would only do that once you feel like you are a savvy enough clicker trainer to be able to tell what's really reinforcing your horse. Because if you're you know, pulling on his lead and he walks with you. And then, um, when he takes a step forward, you click and treat, you don't really know which one he's, um, which one is really reinforcing his behavior. Um, so that's a very basic example, but it, it's, it gets messy. And there's also the concept like earlier mentioned, um, when the listener was like, I don't know if I should use both. Um, the, the danger with using both is something called the poison cue. Um, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Um, Jesus, uh, what's the rest of his name? Uh, Rosales Ruiz. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. He is a professor at University of North Texas, and he's the one that did this. Um, him and um, Mary. Oh my God, what's Mary's last name? I met her. I know her. Her last name is escaping me, and for sake of time, I will not sit here and try to figure it out. But that's going to irritate me. Um, they work together on this project of learning the poisoned cue and um you can look it up and read on it um i think he has a dvd out on it um and you can do all that research but essentially it's kind of like the human scenario is if your boss came up behind you at work and was tapped you on the shoulder and gave no expressional cues but said i need you to see me in my office after work and you were like okay and they walked away you have no idea if you're going to get you know, fired, or if you're going to get a raise or a promotion, you have no idea what that's about. And you're going to sit and you're going to think about that and be anxious the entire time. So that can, that can be what happens if you poison a cue with horses and with dogs or whatever you're training. If the animal doesn't know if they're going to get punished or if they're going to get negatively reinforced, or if they're going to get positively reinforced, then you create a lot of stress and you complete oh my god create a completely different animal who is unaware and unsure of what is coming next and then that creates a lot of anxiety in the animal and that's why people caution caution novice trainers to not use both um together because then you can really further confuse what the clicker means and then you'll have to switch sounds because the horse will have paired it and it will have poisoned it and um like there's a whole study done on it. This is why it's called the poison cue, but you can poison reinforcers and stimuli as well. Um, like if, like if you're clicking and the horse doesn't know if he's going to get punished or reinforced, then the clicker will become a, a, a sign of, um, you don't know what's coming and it'll just be anxiety inducing. So, um, I would really encourage you listener Bianca to refrain from using both until you have made your way through some of those books and just keep those sessions separate. Like when you're riding, just ride. Like I said earlier, you can take the fanny pack off before you get on and you can, um, just really start making that, um, 
differentiated to the horse. Um, or you can keep the sessions entirely separate and you can do positive reinforcement before, give the horse a 10 minute break and then go get them and then tack them up, ride, turn them out, do another session, you know? Um, so you can keep that all separate, but to answer your specific question of how do you know if a super polite horse gets it? So we actually had a horse here, um, and he still is ours, but he's out in training because I don't do eventing training really at the moment. Um, so he's out um, being trained by someone else. But when he was here, I was working with him and he was super polite around food. He was also a little bit head shy. So he wasn't too keen on being in your space because he was, you know, kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think because um, I know Sunny, um, my boss, does not allow any of her racehorses to get hit or ear twitched or smacked in the face or anything like that. Um she will light anyone on fire and does that to her horses because she's like I want them to be able to cuddle with me when they come off the track so they better not be head shy <laughs> and um ruler um he knew what to expect from Sonny but me as a new person he was like I don't really know he's a little wary of me touching his head so he was super polite around food and um so I I've experienced this where it's hard to tell you're like are you actually staying out of my space or is that just how you are so don't stop reinforcing for that behavior. He's doing the right thing. So like props to him for that. And you know, when you start working on other behaviors, make sure that you're still reinforcing him out of your space so that you're, you know, simultaneously being like, you're getting the reward for what you just did, but also you're getting a reward for staying in the right place. Um, so there's that. But, um, something else you could do is, um, try target training. Um, so you don't have to start, um, introducing what the clicker means because, or with the rules of the game. That's, it's not a rule that you have to start there. Generally, I like to start with target training and then do rules of the game because target training can be a little bit clearer. Um, cause you give the horse a visual task, like you must touch this thing and then you'll get a treat rather than the rules of the game can be a little bit ambiguous because you're expecting the horse to read your body language and then move off based on that. Um, so if the horse has prior experience of like, this is an object that you need to touch, touch that. And then like, while you're teaching the horse that you're still feeding them out of your space, you're stepping towards them so that they're not having to come into you and you're feeding them out of your space. So you can take a step towards them, feed them all the way at the length of your arm, depending on how long your arms are, you might have to take a few steps and get all the way to them so that they're not coming to you. And even if they come into your space, still feed them out. Um, and that way they learn that like, oh, there's really no point in coming into your space because I'm just going to get fed exactly where I was. So that's the goal. Um, but, um, another way that people like to start, um, clicker training is to what they call loading the clicker. And that is where you just click and feed, click and feed, click and feed, click and feed. Um, and that just tells the horse that the clicker means food is coming and to expect food from the clicker. That's not entirely my favorite way to start. I know people swear up and down by that, and I totally get it, and I understand why you would do that, because it's the simplest thing, but I don't like to really start off like that, um, because in my personal opinion, I like to establish that the clicker means two things right off the bat. It means that was right and food is coming, not, and I, I get that that can possibly cross the threshold of, like, being too, um, asking for too much, but if you do it right, then it, can't be. Um, so like if you hold out the target when you're starting target training and the horse looks in its direction, click and treat. And then you're, the horse is like, I looked over there and then I got this weird sound and I got food. And then when the horse, when you hold out the target again, the horse looks, you click and treat. He's like, okay, I'm looking at this thing. I'm hearing a noise. 
and food is coming. And then when you represent the target and then he reaches out to touch it and you click and treat, the horse is like, ah, if I touch this thing, that sound is made and that means food is coming. So the horse is looking to get, uh, make the sound happen so that food comes. And that's how the clicker training works and how the clicker gets conditioned as a secondary reinforcer because food, water, shelter, companionship, those are all primary reinforcers. So you know, in training, we predominantly use um, food and scratches uh, because those are things that we can do. We cannot necessarily provide companionship as we are not horses. I mean, you uh, companion, whatever. It's not the same as like being in a herd. Um, but, you know, so you can break it down and make it very simple for the horse. And that might be a better way for you, Bianca, to um, work with your horse who's already super polite around food. And that's great. I mean, that's one less thing you have to do. But if you really want to make sure he understands the clicker and he's not super ambivalent on it, um, I would do target training and I would eliminate using negative reinforcement with it as you're starting out. I think it's totally fine to use them in conjunction if it's done well, but it is, it is tricky and it is complicated to do them well. And I'm not saying that to discourage anybody. I'm just, I'm more so saying it to encourage you to get to a point where you're confident before moving into trying to do all these different things at once. Get really good at one and then you can start combining, um, you know, because most of us are already pretty good at negative reinforcement. Um, so I hope that helps. Let me make sure I answered all of that. Um, he's not, okay, let me turn around release. He's not always responsive to the click, like he doesn't understand what it means. And two minutes later, click for the behavior again, he'll prick his ears and look to me for reinforcement. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's essentially what what we've got to do here. And also, if he's pricking his ears and looking at you for reinforcement, that probably means he doesn't understand the rules of the game. And he might just be polite. Zoe does it sometimes, but for the most part, she knows that when I click to assume a position. And she puts her head in a place, and I can see she's looking at me out of the corner, like out of the side of her eye. Well, the eyes are on the side of their head. But like I can see that she's looking directly at me, and she's got like an ear on me, but her head is straight. Um, coming out of between her shoulders. So um, for the most part, sometimes I get a little lax and if she turns around, I'll feed her, but that's because I know she's not going to bite me or get muggy or anything like that. But that is, again, an intuition thing that comes with having done this for a while. Um, But I do not recommend feeding the horse in your space um, until you're confident. And even then, it's still a lax trainer thing to do and I don't recommend it. Sorry, I had to take a drink of water. Anyway, hope that helps. Try targeting. That's what I like to do first because it tells the horse, establishes that like the clicker means something and that food is on its way. And then you'll have a horse that really understands it altogether, not just like sort of an ambiguous thing like um, the feeding out of your space can be. Um, And then when you do that, when you're in target training and then when you keep feeding out of your space, it can kind of give them a hint for when you start training manners and rules of the game um, that that's where they need to be. Um, okay. So next question, and these are the last two questions and they are rather long. One of them includes five questions, <laughs> but they are numbered. So that is very nice. It helps my brain. Um, love organized people. Sorry for the burp. Oh my God. We're almost at an hour and a half. It's crazy. might make it to two hours with this one. Oh, sorry for the burp. <laughs> I'm not editing that out. Listener Emily asks, I have Lisa Pertron paint mare named Daisy and I got to ride her three days per week, including a lesson. I do wear spurs with her and I carry a dressage whip in our ride. I never use a dressage whip unless I absolutely have to. And even then I'm uncomfortable using it. So I would say don't ride with it. 
Um, I used the spurs to keep her on her forehand, uh, or keep her forward. I was like, forehand, what? Um, but they are only used lightly and with care. I don't want her to shy away from my leg and be afraid of my leg in any way. She's a very lazy horse, can be extremely slow and hard to keep a forward pace on. Um, so I understand. I completely understand where you're coming from. But um, to me, spurs are kind of a quick fix solution. Um, spurs and whips in conjunction, I mean. Um, to me, I am not a huge fan of using whips unless it is not used in a... Um, you know, sharp way. Um, but like if you take a whip and you hit yourself with it, try and make that not hurt, but still be effective. It's, it's very difficult to control the amount of ouch in a whip, but in spurs, it's a lot easier because it's a lot slower, more subtle pressure. Um, so I'm more of an advocate for using spurs than I am whips. Um, but that's not to say I don't use them when I lunge, but that's more as a chasey thing, not as a, um, hitty thing, which is arguably still bad. I mean, like, you're scaring a horse into running forward, but some of them I must lunge. (laughs) That's part of my job. Um, Not my favorite thing in the world, but sometimes it must be done, especially, like, in the earlier case, we were talking about, like, horses that are overweight and must exercise, like, it is for the better, and if we're going to have to do it, I would prefer to, um, you know, kind of scare them into going forward and then immediately stop, then um, hit them with it and cause pain and fear. Okay, so um, you, she's lazy and you have to use spurs. Um, my suggestion to that would be to attempt to fix her diet to help her not to be quite so lazy. Sometimes it is just a personality with a horse, especially being like a drafty kind of animal. <laughs> they tend to be a little bit on the more docile side, which can be frustrating. And, you know... Um, I forgot to say this one um, on my little spur rant that I think that it is a lot more humane to use a poke of a spur than to beat your legs against the side of your horse. Because if you're highly against using spurs, but when you're on a slower horse and you're kicking the dog shit out of them, like that's not more humane than using spurs, in my opinion. Um, and spurs you usually only have to use once and then they're pretty sharp off your leg. So, um, it's, I see the debate there. I really do. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, mm, let's, let's go with the more humane, uh, less invasive option here. Um, but yeah, so there's that. Um, during my lessons, we have introduced flying changes and I'm not sure if I agree with how my trainer wants to teach them. It seems to me that my trainer and some friends, um, some of my friends think too, that the best way to get across something through your, to your horse is negative reinforcement. We started going up the long side of the arena, which is three fourths of the way down, looping. Oh my God, it just started raining like super hard here. That's crazy. I didn't think it was supposed to rain today. Anyway, um, (laughs) sorry, that was like a really detailed part of the message that I just like noped out of. Um, we started going up the long side of the arena about three fourths of the way down looping and a 180 degree turn and leg yielding back to the rail. Okay. So like you're doing like a turn onto the center line and then, um, yeah. And then leg yielding back. Um, kind of like a shallow serpentine but leg yielding and then when you hit the rail you whack her with the whip in your outside hand and um she should somewhat understand what i'm asking um yeah whatever um we only did that a few times and then we moved to doing the changes on the diagonal my trainer told me to turn onto the diagonal and then ask for a leg yield then when i got to the rail on the opposite side to whack her with the whip as hard as i can and i'm not exaggerating she actually said as hard as you can now at first I thought this was the only way to do things, but I started listening to your podcast and my viewpoint changed a lot. I want to stop using the whip so forcefully and maybe only tapping her behind to start, but once she picks it up, I want to get rid of the whip entirely. 
I want to know what you think about the way I'm trying to teach Daisy and what, in your opinion, I should change. If you aren't sure about it, then could you recommend something to read or something that might help me? Okay, so, or something to watch that might help me, yeah. Okay, so, um, I mean, I have not mastered lead changes using positive reinforcement yet, um, <laughs> nor am I positive that I ever will. Um, and that is a big movement to ask. And I know that there are plenty of trainers out there that can do it. I know Georgia Bruce is very good um, with um, like high level dressage movements. She's um, click with horses on most platforms. She has Facebook pages and all that good stuff. And she's competitive and still uses clicker training and is one of the most kind riders I've ever seen in my life. I look up to her so much in that regard. Um, but she... Um, yeah, she can train those things. I cannot. So I can't sit here and tell you how to step-by-step -step train a um, lead change through um, positive reinforcement. And while I am not super keen on giving advice for negative reinforcement, um, mostly because I'm not entirely sure where I stand. My opinion on it has been subject to change in the past. So I'm kind of like hesitant to really talk on it too much. But in the spirit of preventing smacking to get a lead change, I would, um, encourage more, um, focus on, like, using other, I don't know why I'm so spacing out my words here, like, other forms of helping her get the lead change. Something that often helps horses, um, a lot is poles. Like, if you have a pole on a diagonal, and maybe you do, like, kind of a serpentine, and um, you come around and then you take like a 90 degree turn to the pole. And then over the pole, you move your new outside leg back, open your new inside rein, close the um, new outside rein, which was the old inside rein, and um, ask for the lead change that way. That's been really helpful for me. That's how I've always taught them is either over poles or over fences. Um, I'll never forget, I was riding under an instructor and it was the most helpful thing because um, Bo, my last horse, had so much trouble with changes and arguably because he was not necessarily the most well put together guy and I did not ride him in a proper frame that really would have helped his confirmation. Um, but when we would jump, um, this coach was like, you know, say you're, say you're cantering on the right lead. And he was like, when you go over the fence, you switch to having your right hand be closed open your left rein, uh, put your weight in your right stirrup. Not that you're like leaning off, but, um, your left leg or, oh my God, your right leg is back and you've got some weight in that stirrup because you're changing all of your right side to being the new outside. So like, you know, like maybe the stride out as you're taking off, um, so that the horse has a clear, like, this is the lead I would like you to land on, you know, not just like in the air. You're like, okay, change. Um, but you're giving them hints that like on the backside, you're going to be turning that direction. And then the horses will often gather themselves because they know they'd like to be balanced and um, they'll land on that lead. Um, so sometimes it helps to use a jump because they've already got that upward momentum because the reason lead changes is so hard is because the horses have to load onto their hind end and lift their front end and change. And so if you're already going over a jump, that makes that a lot easier and a lot clearer to the horse um, rather than just like, you know, jerking them sideways really fast. It's a common one. So they like fall over and in order to catch themselves, they have to change leads or, um, like your trainers having you do is to smack them. Um, it can be easier 
And I mean, you could probably present to your trainer, just be like, I have really been taking um, our training seriously and I really want to get good at lead changes and I've been watching a lot of videos and I really want to try doing it over a jump. I think that might help clarify with Daisy a little bit, you know, so she's already going over a jump and then I can just work on communicating with my aides to change direction and then eventually we can lower it from like 18 inches to an X-rail and then to a pole on the ground and then eventually to no pole and then she'll just understand the cue and, um, you know, I... I don't even know if I would touch the whip issue because sometimes that can um, cause people to go into defense because they're like, oh, I, we're not being abusive. Oh, my God. And then they start focusing on the wrong thing. And then you're like, and then you've lost the argument entirely because they're like, no, we're not doing that. It's not your horse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just I would approach it from like, I'm really wanting to do this right and well. And I've watched a lot of videos and I was wondering if we could try this way. Um, you know, I don't mean any disrespect or anything like that. I just, I want to try this and then see if they'll let you. Okay. Next question. Um, still from Emily. Another question I have relates to budgeting. I was curious what products you use for your positive reinforcement training. I'm considering starting it with Daisy, but I'm not sure if I can afford it and if she will catch on to it, um, as we will only do it twice per week. Could you tell me what products you use on a day-to-day training basis and where you got them? Okay, so I get this question a lot. You guys can go to jetequitheory.com. It's J-E-T-E-Q-U-I-T-H-E-O-R-Y. I'm not sure if I spelled that super helpfully, but it's jet. Those are my initials. And then equi equi and then theory.com and then on there um there is a tab called positive reinforcement help it's plus our help cover over that and then there's a tab under that that says um favorite products or you could just click on it and it'll take you to a page and there will be like a little list and it'll say like uh positive reinforcement glossary positive reinforcement resources and favorite products the resources and the products pages are going to be your best friends that's where i have compiled everything that i have used and read and listened to to um, get started on in all fairness i have not read all of the books yet because i am very busy all the time um but you can use that um use some of those books uh to read and um the products listed on that page i have the alfalfa pellets that i use to train listed there i get them from tractor supply Um, my boss supplies them so i don't have to pay for them but that is what i use and then i have a bum bag and i use my mouth for a clicker but i really recommend starting off with um, a tangible clicker as that can make your timing a lot better than trying to coordinate your mouth as well um so yeah hopefully that helps that um, lastly, I want to stop using the dressage whip when I ride, but I don't think it is necessary because I don't think it's necessary at all, but I don't know how to approach my trainer on this topic. She's a really good person, but she, like all trainers can be intimidating and I have a hard time talking to her sometimes. Should I bring it up to her? What should I say? I'm a bit, I'm at a bit of a loss here. Um, in the past, not that I'm necessarily recommending you do this in the past with things like that, that I have had an issue with, I just don't use them. Um, I don't know if you're half leasing this horse from your trainer. Um, that can be a bit of a different circumstance. But um, when I've, you know, been riding my horses in the past, like, especially f- when I was like 14 or 15, nose bands were really a big deal for me. I hated riding them. I still hate them. I don't like them. I don't see a point. Um, and so, <laughs> like, my trainers always got so mad at me. And they'd be like, put a nose band on. And I'd be like, okay and then the next lesson i would be they'd be like why don't you have a nose band on and i'd be like i forgot and then eventually they just were like oh my god (laughs) she's not gonna do it (laughs) like we'll just leave it as a non-issue and then i would have to put it on before shows and that was it and then i wouldn't ride with it otherwise and they were like okay it's your horse whatever um and i stopped riding with a dressage whip um as well and 
when my coaches would be like, I need you to bring out a whip next time, I'd be like, okay, and then I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I'm not necessarily recommending that that is the best way to go about things, but um, I don't know, it is an option. But I also would like to think that most trainers, um, you know, if you approach it well, it's you have to be very tactful because obviously if you offend people or you hurt their feelings, they're going to get defensive and they're not going to hear your your side. So you have to be tactful and diplomatic with it. You don't want to insult. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, if you just approach like what I said earlier with uh, maybe trying to incorporate a jump and then work on your lead changes that way. Um, you could even, you know, ask, just be like, could we do like a course that's specifically designed to help us with our lead changes? Um, you know, we could set up one that's got some turns, you know, not super sharp because you're not trying to rip the horse off balance, but just ones so that you can communicate to the horse before you take off, like which direction you're going to turn on landing. Um, and then when they're in the air, they're like, we're going that way. I should probably land on that lead. Um, that could work as well. Um, but also something I should say, if you're noticing that the horse like cannot do a flying change, there might be something wrong to look into. Like I was talking about with Maze, um, she had that shoulder issue and we couldn't, um, she couldn't physically pick up the lead. Um, so there's that. I would probably just, um, get through the, um, the, oh my God, the lead change lesson. And then after that, just like stop carrying one. And, um, you know, if she says anything, just be like, I just don't necessarily think that she needs it. And I'm not entirely sure that like, I would really feel comfortable using one. I'm okay with spurs. Um, but I think that we can ride her without carrying a whip. I understand that some people like to carry them for just in cases, but I think we can probably solve it without the whip if that is okay with you. Um, you know, I mean, you can just be frank and I get it. It's scary. It is so scary. I feel you. I'm also one that is intimidated by authority. So I feel you on that one, 100%. But um, usually, sometimes if you're like, I'm just really not comfortable using a whip. And, um, you know, if you're going to insist that I need to use a whip, um, maybe I need to find a, a lease horse that doesn't require one that's maybe a little bit more forward um, so that we can avoid this issue altogether. Or maybe, um, you know, I need to... I, God, it's tricky because I don't necessarily think that you should threaten, like, leaving barns. But, I mean, it might be something to do um, on your own without necessarily discussing it with your trainer. Because I don't think being like, well, I'll change barns is necessarily a good idea. But just being like, um, you know, if that's something that we can't work past, then I might need to look elsewhere for training. You might just have to do that on your own. Um, but I also understand that that can be difficult. But I hope that helps someone. I know how defeating it can feel. It is it is very hard situation to be in. It is very hard. I'm a Neanderthal. I'm gonna take a drink. And my water is done. Um, but good news, folks. We are on the last question here. This is my first gonna be two hour long episode. I hope that you guys are like, whoa, bonus episode, and that's also hella long. Um, I'm hoping. That this won't be a regular thing because, oh my god, I'm sitting here like stressed out about the amount of homework that I have to do um, and that I have not done and it is already 9.30 and I'm trying to get my sleep schedule fixed so that I can be more productive. But um, yeah, I'm really hoping that I can, um, by doing two episodes a week, that I can like kind of break this up a little bit and if necessary, then I can, you know, do one episode one week and then two episodes some weeks. Um, but I think that if I do do two episodes, it'll probably be on Tuesdays and Fridays. 
That way um, they are spaced out enough to where it'll give you guys a chance to listen to the first one. And then on Friday you'll have the next one. I think that's probably what I'm going to do. Just that way it's half and half, I think. I think that's halfway. Yeah. I think, right? That's Tuesday. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. I think. Unless I just totally screwed that up. Um, It's... The days of the week are odd. You can't have a perfect half, whatever. <laughs> okay. So on to the next one. Uh, anonymous listener asks five different questions. So I will try to be concise because there are a lot. Um, number one, I'm working to incorporate positive reinforcements and rewards to riding and lunging. But if my horse knows I have treats, he will not move and he will just keep his head facing me. Even if I move myself or just wait. Um, okay. So to address this, it's a little bit difficult to give a straight answer to this without like being able to see what's happening. But um, if that is the case, um, in circumstances like that, the horse may just not be educated enough with positive reinforcement to know to offer behaviors. Like if I get on Zoe and she just stands and I don't reward her, she's going to try something else. She might take a step forward and she also knows leg cues and she would step forward if I applied my leg and then I would click and treat for that. Um, so for that, I would, um, hold off, like I said, to the last listener. I don't know. I just like, (laughs) sorry about that. Um, but you're trying to incorporate it into rewards and writing and the way it's worded makes me feel like maybe you haven't been like super, super familiar with it just yet. So maybe just hold off and separate them until you get really savvy with it. Um, because it sounds like it's confusing your horse and, um, you know, if that is the case and you like really want to try this and um, combining them together, I would sit down and pull up and like create a lesson plan um, so that you're not just going out there. And when he's stopping with his head facing you, you're not just like, okay, I don't know what to do now. Um, That way you can have a plan and you'll know what to do if that does happen and that you're not just like sitting there not knowing what to do. Um, Next question. Number two, when riding, I put light pressure and not ramp up the amount of pressure on the rein to turn right, for example, but he will push into the pressure and instead turns left. Um, so now our rides just feel like a constant fight. Sometimes I'll just let him go where he wants instead, lol. He does this with a bit or bitless. I don't know how to fix it or even how it started. Like I said, I don't like riding with reinf- I don't riding with re- I guess you mean positive reinforcement yet. Um, okay, so this used to be a huge huge problem I had with Zoe. Oh my god, it is so fucking annoying. It's so frustrating because you're like, okay, I'm trying to be light with you and they just rip their heads the opposite direction and you're like, okay, I guess we're going that way now. Um, something you can do in those situations um, if they're ignoring that pressure is when they do rip their heads the opposite direction, you can go ahead and turn that direction but just go all the way back around and then go the other way. Um, sometimes that can work. You can be like, okay, we're going this way. Or if he's like trying to look at something, go ahead, check that thing out, see what's going on and then go back. Um, another thing that you can do is from the ground, you can start reteaching rain cues. Um, you can teach him to look one direction or you can use a verbal cue. Um, and you can reward for that and you can put a bridle on and then you can transfer the cue and, um, or, you know, if you're all about simplicity, um, not that I necessarily recommend this one, but it could work. Um, if you have a bridle on and you're not like planning to ride or anything, you're just on the ground and you have a bridle on and you pull on one side, you know, just like lift the rein. And if the horse moves in that direction at all release and then click and treat. 
and then like do that until you've got them moving and you can lead them in a circle and same um, the other direction. And then um, you can try and transfer that from the sa- or to the saddle as well um, and just really make it clear. Um, or if you don't want to confuse using positive reinforcement, you can just do that from the ground. You can teach him to lead and soften to either rain direction, but you'll have to be like really diligent and how I would do it if I was going to use strictly negative reinforcement is I would start on the ground with a bridle on. Firstly, making sure that the horse um, has been chiropractic and that the neck is okay and that there's not any reason that he doesn't want to turn that way. Often their ribs get out too and then that can affect their neck and wanting to turn and bend their barrel. Um, and making sure that his teeth have been done recently so there's no problems going on in his mouth or anything like that. Um, after eliminating that, then I would put the bridle on and... Um, stand in the pasture. Again, this is if I'm not using positive reinforcement. I would um, stand at his shoulder and ask that he turn right, per se. So I'm standing on his right side and I ask that he turn right. And he might swing his haunches out and that's okay, but I'm going to look for him to soften his neck or his eye or his nose in any inch in the direction that I am asking him to soften. And the second he does that, release. And this is going to take a really keen eye and for you to really pay attention because you're going to really want to be consistent with this. Because if he feels like he's giving to you and and you're not releasing, then he's like, well, I don't know what the right answer is. Because the release tells me that 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 was the right thing to do, but you're not releasing. You keep asking. So, hello, Archie. Whoa. Big meows. Um, He says hello. (laughs) Um, But so... Um, furthering on that, if he moves his nose in any inch, you're going to release and, um, just relax for a moment and then ask again and, um, maybe you'll get a little bit further and so on and so forth until you've got him, you know, really reaching around and then you can add walking, you know, you can get him walking beside you. I wouldn't try to like pull him and get him to walk while you're like in the same spot that you've been doing all the standing flexing work. What I would do is, um, just like start walking beside him and then gradually ask. And then when you ask him to turn his nose slightly, don't expect for the full thing that you just got standing because you're going to have to uh, lower your criteria and ask for less because you've introduced something new, which is moving forward. So you're just going to take it all the way back to basics and make it really simple. Make sure it's clear, find holes in the training and correct them. And so then you're going to start walking and then um, ask him to turn his nose. And then when he does, release. And then you work on that and getting him to flex while he's walking. And then the next step would be to introduce turning. So you can like step your body away from him. And then instinctually, he should probably step towards you because he realizes you're turning. Um, But don't get in front of him because you'll block him from turning. So stay at his shoulder and that sort of thing. Um, So hopefully you'd be able to work up from there. And um, then you can transfer that to the saddle because then you know his rain cues are really clear. But again, in the saddle, don't ask for too much too fast because you might confuse him or he might be like, you're not releasing. What's the right answer? I don't know what to do. Um, So just take it slow and try to reintroduce it. Um, Again, usually I think that horses might be doing that as like a discomfort response. Something is up, um, whether they're not being reinforced. enough because you know they're not getting that release you keep pulling or whatever or somebody in the past has kept pulling or um you know it just doesn't feel good because they've got something going on in their neck or something i don't know zoe was like that because she came off the track and had never (laughs) really experienced much like really 
um, advanced turning, um, you know, just sort of the usual walking to the track, being on the, being on the track, you know, wasn't a whole lot of like, I need you to flex this direction and bend in a 90 degree turn. <laughs> um, so that was a bit difficult and I was not the best rider at the time and I was not conscientious of how negative reinforcement worked. Um, okay. Question number three, I haven't been able to find the sound on the internet anywhere and I don't know what it means. The best way to describe it is a honking noise similar to a horse that was galloping and upset, but he hasn't been galloping. He's just walking with his head low and relaxed. Huh? Haven't been I don't know what it means. Best way to describe it is a honking noise similar to a horse that's galloping and upset, but he hasn't been galloping. He's just walking with his head low. Like roaring? That's the only thing I can think of. Walking with his head low and relaxed. Or is it like the, oh, you know what? It might be, because this is a gelding, um, it might be his gaskin and his back leg. It can make that sound. Or when the sheath needs to be cleaned, like maybe he has a bean in um, where his penis goes um, in a sheath um, that can make sound sometimes. Um, so I would look up like horse that needs a sheath cleaned and see if that's maybe the sound. Um, it's kind of like a whooping noise. I don't know how to describe that either. Um, but yeah, that's it usually happens most when they're trotting. Um, but I mean, if you want to like take a video of it and send it to me, or um, if you can like try and recreate it with your mouth, then, um, you can, like, take an audio file and send it to me and just be like, ah, this is weird, but here, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure how to help with that, but if, um, if it is the whooping sound, um, I would have a vet out and just make sure that his sheath is clean, whatever. Um, for the last, or number four, um, for the last one relating to my horse that is one that's more frustrating and embarrassing for me is why does my horse know how to lead but will randomly stop for up to 10 minutes and not move? Sometimes it's just because he wants to grasp, but most of the time not. He has been at this barn for two years, so it's not a new place and he doesn't usually get spooked. Um, that sounds a lot like this, uh, similar question. Um, I think it was the first one I answered when the horse, like, doesn't want to walk out of his stall. It's usually because they don't want to leave the place, um, that they've been or go back to the place because for me, Zoe has this habit is real bad and Bo did it too. Um, they would not walk down to the arena with me. It was so annoying because I'm like, Oh my God, I do not want to stop here for 10 minutes while you stare at nothing. Um, or just stop and like look around or stop and pull me to the grass. Um, they used to do all of those things because they didn't want to go to the arena. They did not. And so the whole time we're walking there, they're just like stopping and I, I go sideways and pull and go sideways and then eventually get them to take a step and then I soften and then they stop immediately again. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to just like haul you all the way to the arena. But like, but it's because they're, they're not happy with something that's happening. Either it's painful or scary or uncomfortable, whatever you said, this horse isn't spooking. Um, so it's probably, he doesn't want to go wherever he's going. The flip side to this is, um, Zoe now, very easy to lead out of her pasture. She's not easy to get back to her pasture. <laughs> if I lead her out to groom her in the cross ties or to take her out to um, the field to work with her or to the arena to work with her, she doesn't want to go back. She stops the entire way back and it's so annoying because she knows that when I get done training, I'm going to turn her out into the field and I'm going to just put her away and we're going to be done. And she doesn't want to do that. She wants to keep working because she's getting treats and she enjoys it. And so, um, it's like, okay, great. Um, and if I were a really stellar trainer, I would make going back to the paddock something really good. I would end my sessions in the arena early 
and then go back to her paddock and then keep working with her there. Um, and that way she's not like, I don't want to go back there because it's not going to be as fun. Um, so that is something to consider there. Um, um, I feel like I answered that thoroughly enough the first time, so I'm not going to get into that again. Um, okay. Number five, I also feel like a bit of a bad horsey caretaker because I'm not able to give them anything or everything they need to live a good life, but I'm doing my best. Um, and, uh, sorry, I just want to interject, but I'm going to keep reading. Um, and was wondering what your option option would be of, uh, what is the better choice? Oh, opinion. That's what it should be. It says option. Um, he can either be in a pasture with horses on a hill, but he only gets fed twice a day without a hay net or be in a large stall slash run-in type that is outside, can have hay net twice a day, but would be living by himself with only other horses next to him. It's so hard to choose over what he physically needs, what, um, he mentally, emotionally needs. Those are the same thing. I guess physically you're talking about like hay, um, or are neither of those options good enough? Okay, so, oh, there are actually six questions in this. Um, okay, so, okay, let's reevaluate here. Uh, being a pasture with other horses on a hill, but he only gets fed twice a day without a hay net. Um, or he's in a large stall slash run-in type that is outside, can have a hay net twice a day, but would be living by himself with other horses next to him. Would he be getting grain in this situation as well? Because for me, the first option is better. Um, I think that, um, buddies are always better. Horses are not built to be alone. I get like having buddies around him, but I mean, it's not necessarily the same as being with them in a herd. Um, so, and like, I mean, if, if the hill has grass and hay or has good quality grass, then he doesn't need hay theoretically. So, I mean, I would pick that option. And I mean, if you notice that he's starting to like, you know, lose weight and slip a little bit, you can bring him up, um, to where he would be getting constant hay, but getting a hay net twice a day is not necessarily enough. Cause that's what Zoe gets. Zoe gets grain hay net twice a day and has a field of grass and they they'll eat the hay net standing in one hour and they get four pretty condensed flakes and they'll eat it in an hour. So it's not really enough to have an option to be able to graze all day is better in my opinion. Um, but my ponies do, so that is my opinion on that. Um, I, and, like, again, don't don't feel super guilty. Um, you know, you have to do the best you can with what you can afford and what's around you. Like, I mean, if you had your horse in a complete dry lot and were not able to feed them, then it is time to get rid of the horse and give it to somebody who can take care of it. But in this situation, you're doing the best you can. You really care about your horse. You're trying to be an ethical owner and you know, make the right choices, choices for your horses. So don't fault yourself too much. It's, it's a big undertaking. It is a lot of work. So try to go a little bit easier on yourself. Um, number six, this is more a random question, but do you know who am, how Emma Massingale trains and do you agree with how she trains? Um, I'm going to look her up really fast. I'm pretty sure is they do connection training, correct? No. Um, uh, of course, their website would not say, I mean, not website, um, Instagram. That's where I always go for information like that. Oops, I just knocked my thingamajig off. Oh, I just got charged for Amazon Prime. That sucks so bad. Um, 
Okay, visit our website. I think they're the connection training people. Pretty sure it's Emma and somebody else. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so I took a pee break and I took a moment to look up Emma Massengill. I was wrong. She is not one of the connection training. That is Emma and Hannah, I think. Oh my god, I've already forgotten if that is their names. I hate that because I would really like to read their book and maybe join their program at some point, but I, that is not something that has been in the cards for me financially. But, um... Yeah, I really respect what connection training does. But um, looking at Emma Massingale, she seems to be one of the kinder, more polite, more educated upper-level writers, which is really exciting and encouraging. But she still um, does use quite a bit of force and um, natural horsemanship techniques and things like that. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily something that I'm, like, super proud, like, or, uh, like, keen to be like, yeah, I want to do that. Um because a lot of um, things like natural horsemanship can be really, really flashy, and so can positive reinforcementship. I mean, like, look at It's Crunch Time. Her Too Many Ponies are, like, the most impressive things in the world. And uh, Georgia Bruce uh, does all sorts of awesome trick training with her horses um, and doesn't use, like, the principles of, like, your horse is right-brained or left-brained or they have this horsonality and you need to assert your dominance and back them up shaking lead ropes and chasing them with whips and play all these games and stuff. It's just all arbitrary to me and also is not founded in science. Um, so yeah, but Emma Massengale, from what I can tell, I did not have all of the time in the world to watch all of her videos and see for sure, but she seems to be much politer, but I would caution everyone who watches videos like that. Like it's fun and exciting. Um, but often the way that we get there is not necessarily the most fun way in the world, but her horses seem pretty happy, so I'm optimistic about the way that she trains. Um, sometimes you'll see Liberty horses that have their ears slammed against their head and their nostrils are pulled back and they look so pissed off, and it is that is a reflection of frustration and training methods. Um, so I would, I would pay attention to that if I were you. Um, anyway, so I think... That is that. Um, also, listener who asked all of these questions, um, just if I forget to respond to the rest of your email, know that I appreciate your struggle. It is difficult for all of us to um, be able to do everything, but especially if you have extenuating circumstances that were asked to remain private, and I will keep them that way. Um, it can be really hard um, to stay consistent and feel like you're doing enough, but um, you're learning, you're trying to better your education and you are asking questions, you're thinking and trying to be the best trainer, um, and horsewoman that you can be. And that is highly respectable. So again, everybody, let's not fault ourselves too much. We are all trying and we're all learning and trying to be better. The only time you can fault yourself is when you're not trying and you don't care and you don't want to learn for the betterment of yourself or for your horse. But, um, with that, everybody, I want you to keep your heads up. It has been officially dun, 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 two hours of me talking, and it only took one pee break and one bottle of water, so I am impressed. Um, thank you all. If you have listened this long, I hope you enjoyed this sort of deep dive into all of your questions. I hope I helped you in some way, shape, or form. Oh my god, my cat almost died. Um, yeah, did that scare you? <laughs> um, anyway, um, 
yeah, so I hope I answered you guys' questions. I hope that you guys are enjoying these episodes. Um, and if you have a question, again, you can email me at jetrealpodcast at gmail.com. Please, again, let me know if you would like me to answer your podcast, or answer your question on the podcast, and if you are okay with me saying your name or not. Um, beyond that, I think that that's going to be about it. Be sure to follow the Jet Real podcast on Instagram. And if you want to follow me and my ponies, I'm Jet Equitheory, literally on every social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. You got it. Um, all that good stuff. And with that, I think I'm going to leave you guys. Thank you so much again for listening. And I hope that the sporadic sponsorship posts throughout this one were not too annoying. I know they are repetitive because I only have two sponsors currently, but um, I would like to maximize if I'm going to be talking for two hours. I hope that you guys don't mind a few extra sponsorships. I do apologize, but thank you so much for listening and tolerating it. It really helps me a ton. And um, beyond that, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Until Tuesday. Goodbye.